Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Accra, Ghana. It's a lovely after the rain. You know how after it rains, sometimes the sun just comes up and it's so blazing hot. I think that's the kind of day we're having today. So last night we had tremendous storms, thunderstorms, which are also nice. And water is great, so I never complain about that. But you know, this is nearly November and we're still in a little bit of a raining season because it's raining at least once, twice a week. So again, I always bring this up in the conversation. It's a little bit weird, but you know, we got to count our blessings in some ways. In any case, it's a beautiful day. You might hear some kids in the background. That is my neighborhood. Just it's after school here. And meanwhile, I am speaking with a fellow countrywoman, but not in the country. So, you know, it's a very interesting time, not only in Ghana, but also in a place that you'll hear will be um, of interest when you hear her speak. And so it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to getting her take a little bit on some of what's going on. Uh, let me just get into the introduction. My next guest has always been fascinated by mysteries. She loves decoding situations and analyzing people. As a professionally certified executive coach, every day she finds herself conversing with amazing leaders and executives as they gather clues to help reshape their leadership approach and improve their skills. During her corporate career, she honed her detective skills, creating innovative processes, customer experiences, business strategies, and models for global companies in biotechnology like Alonza, Energy, BP Oil and Gas, and financial services at Citigroup. Working with different personalities and cultures in companies that were sometimes slow to embrace change or undergoing rapid transformation enables her to share lessons learned and relate to what her clients may be experiencing. As founder of My Factor Coaching and Consulting, which she founded in 2007, her firm is contributing to a world where high achieving leaders can show up as their best selves and create workspaces that inspire, motivate, include, develop, and show care for the teams they lead. Michelle Obukutatum, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Florence. Thank you so much for the lovely, lovely welcome and for having me. This is going to be so interesting because usually I'm the one that asks questions. But right, right. I'm in your hands. So, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, excellent, excellent. So let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Great. So I, I love this question. So I'm local in Harlem, New York. I'm first generation Ghanaian, born in High Wycombe, England. But very much High Wycombe? High Wycombe, yeah. Have you heard of okay. High Wycombe? No, I haven't. No one's heard of it. It's a, well, not many people have heard of it. It's a small furniture town southeast of London, uh, about 60 minutes okay. outside, 40, 30 to 60 minutes outside of London, depending on where you're going. But like, I like to share that I was very much raised Ghanaian in High Wycombe mm -hmm. to appreciate my Ghanaian heritage. And then when I was about seven years old, I moved from England to Ghana. Um, with my two sisters so we, my mum went and then she came back and so it's just my sisters and we lived with my granddad and one of the things that I, I just remember going to school I really struggled to sort of like conform to the teaching methods and which often meant that I was teased by my teachers and my classmate and so it was really 
when I was at school, it, was, it felt like there was one way of doing things and I had another way of doing things. And so I just became painfully aware at that time because you were talking about me decoding, but I became painfully aware that my situation had changed, right? And, and no one else around me was going to change, right? So once I started to learn the rules, I really took like starts to develop a better relationship with the teacher, my classmates, and then they slowly started to accept and include me. So then fast forward, I now two years later come back to High Wycombe, this time now with a Ghanaian accent in at the same All primary right. school. And um, <laughs> yeah. same thing, like had to work hard to fit in. And so really from there sort of like created the understanding that there are rules to master and it became sort of like a game for me, not really to win, mm. but to like figure out mm -hmm. what are the rules and how does one push the rules? How does one flex in the rules? How does one, you know, accommodate the rules? So, I mean, that really influences like how I show up in this world and, and, and a large part of my work today. So the job description-y title, you talked about it earlier, I'm an executive coach. I run my own executive coaching and leadership development practice. But the what of my craft is really about giving voice to questions mm. and, you know, and asking high achieving leaders sometimes who don't have the courage to ask the question, let alone answer the questions. And the how of my craft is really around sharing feedback, right? And in a way that shines a light on one's blind spots, inspires ownership, and then asking thought provoking questions and listening for opportunities to guide introspection, clarity, and forward movement. Mm, that's dope. I love how you put that. No, I really do. I'm just like, you know, it's so interesting because, and I don't mean to drift a little, but I think about where we came from as Ghanaian children. And this may not have been your experience, but when I talk to a lot of Ghanaian children and maybe African children on the whole, oftentimes, particularly when dealing with their parents, there was you weren't able to ask questions, right? So when you say that, you know, this is now your profession is like really diving into the question and really getting the answers and really like then sharing that. It's something that I know that I struggled with a lot in my adult life and my personal relationships, right? So in work, you, you, you know, you know how to cope, you figure it out, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting. And I think becoming a leader is much is so much of an intimate relationship with yourself. And so mm -hmm. really kind of combing through all of that actually allows you to be that leader and then empathize and connect with other people in that way. So so I just, you know, that just came to mind with what, what you said. So let's talk more about how you, this young woman who spent a few formative years in Ghana and then ended up back in the UK and became local in Harlem, how did how did all that happen? What happened to Michelle that was a discoverer when she got back to the UK and then, you know, proceeded to become the Michelle we're looking at today or, or speaking with today? Yeah, I love that question. I, I love the comment that you made about really knowing yourself, mm. right? It's really hard to lead people if you don't know who you are and if you're not comfortable with who you are. In terms of like what brought me here, so it feels really surreal to say that I've lived in New York for 20 years. Wow. Um, given <laughs> it feels like, well, how did this happen? I really, I mean, I moved here. I remember when I moved, I was only going to come live here for two uh -huh. years. But along the way, I developed roots. Obviously, I met the love of my life. He told me to say that. <laughs> Shout out, Stanley. <laughs> I really didn't tell me to say I that. I love it. I um, love it. <laughs> we, 
we got married, had two kids. We built a community or I built a community because he's a New mm-hmm. Yorker and a, a career and then a business. But if you polled my family and asked my family and friends, I was the last person that anybody would have said would move away from High Wycombe, let alone outside the country because I'm a homebody. Mm. But it was my second job outside, out of university. I um, applied for a job at an oil and gas company. And I already knew things would be different if I got that job because the interview was with, like, he became the best boss that I've ever had. But the interview was with this man at a restaurant. It wasn't even at the office. We were at the restaurant and he was asking about me and we were getting to know each other. And it was just a very different experience. And so I interviewed with him, we connected, he made the offer. I joined the company about two months later. You know, we all know the importance of relationships at work and advocacy at work. I joined the company. Two months later, he announces that he's going to the US. He's moving to the US. My heart went like, oh my goodness, who's going to be my person? But he said, don't worry. And, you know, don't worry. I'll figure out something so you can do an international development assignment Mm. soon. But, you know, people say things, and I didn't really think that he would follow through. But sure enough, I remember sitting in my office and I get a note from HR about paperwork for my visa. And within a month of that email, probably three weeks of that email, I was in Dallas, Texas. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so then I go, the first day at work, I go into his office and he says, how long is your visa for? This is a three-month development yeah. assignment. Yeah. He says, how long is your visa for? And I say, three years. And he says, great, we've got you for some time. But I'm looking at him thinking, oh, some time. I just dumped all my stuff in my parents' garage for three years. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go. I need three right. months. I need to sure. go back. But um, yeah, so essentially that was it. Oh, I mean, wow. So then I, I was in Dallas for two years. Wow. Yeah. And then I moved to Evanston, Illinois, where I went to business okay. school at Kellogg School of Management. And then a couple of years later, I moved to New York and worked in finance. Mm. So that's kind of my short, short, although it was long, but my short sort of like preamble to how I got Sure, there. sure, sure. Okay, so so Dallas was oil and gas. Yes. And then business school. So I want to kind of get a sense of, you know, how you how you landed in going to Evanston. Like, how did you choose that as your as your yeah. place? Because, you know, it is you went from like Dallas is similar to Ghana, you know, in terms of the weather in terms it's very different from London. So I'm sure you had a lot of nice sunny days. Yeah. But yeah. So how did so how did you transition from that role with that company into deciding that business school was what you wanted to do? Yeah. So two parallel things here. When I was brought to Texas, I was the only woman. I was the only person under the age of 30. Someone said that their briefcase had more experience than me. And I was the only black person. He had talked me up about, oh, Michelle's coming to join the team. Michelle's this, Michelle's that. But when I walked into the room, like years later, when we were talking about it, he said, you could have heard a pin drop. Because no one, yeah, this is a white man advocating for me. No one thought the who, the person that walked in the room was the person that was going to walk in the room. So Texas was just a big learning opportunity. I would go out. The team was about twenty five different. It was all male from different operating companies, and we would get together like once every two months in Dallas, Texas, and we would go. And also, I don't eat meat, so being like every time we went out, they went out for steak, but. Every time we went out for dinner, they would 
collect the men and then leave me behind because they could not, no one thought this black woman was with all these guys. So after a while, the men started to realize, you know, after a while they started to realize and they would say, get in the middle so we can all sit down because they always leave you out. But there was a lot that I learned in Texas about the dynamics Mm. of race that I hadn't necessarily appreciated Mm. growing up in England. The other part of that was that I was working on a project where I primarily worked with consultants from, it was a consulting firm. And if I remember rightly, the lead of the project went to Harvard and he was all about the data, the data, the data. The second went to, the second in command went to Kellogg. He was all about the people Uh, and how, and the interpersonal and the team and sort of like, how are we going to motivate people to execute? And then there were other sort of like esteemed institutions. But that's really how I based it. I wanted to be more like the second person because he always thought about the people. Do I care about data? Yes, I care about data. But I just always thought that his perspective was, How are the people going to feel? How are we going to move people through this? How are we going to get them to embrace change? And so, you know, of course, you don't just apply to one school. I applied to all of them. And Kellogg was the place where I felt the most at home. I just remember stepping onto campus and just feeling this energy and excitement that I didn't. and, And also belonging, I have to say, like, just it was so great. So that's how I ended up in in Evanston. Nice. So this leads me to the why the where, right? So you can, you've you come from Dallas through Evanston. So why the where? How did you come to be living, working, and playing where you currently are? Now, New York, but also specifically into in Harlem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have choices as to where you live, where you can move to. And I, at that point, I'd been away from England and what I call home for four or five years. And so... I had opportunities to go and work in York, Pennsylvania, somewhere in Wisconsin. I remember going to York, Pennsylvania. They, I mean, obviously they they were they had some objectives there. Myself and an Asian American friend went, and we got to the airport, and <laughs> I was so oblivious. Sometimes he said, "Do you notice how everybody's staring at us?" I said, "No. Why would they be staring at us?" And he said. Because there's no one around here that looks like us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, that, again, was a very funny interview process because they, I met with a black executive and he said to me, literally in the interview, my wife told me that I needed to tell you all these things. And, and it was a really, it was a really real interview. I ended up not going there because my rationale was that New York was closer to home. It was more diverse. Yeah. And I already, we have a friend in common who had already moved to New York a year ahead, who had graduated and moved to New York. And I thought, at least I know one person in New York. So I ended up in New York and in particular Harlem. So that's, you know, I was, I was dating at the time, but I was ready to move to Brooklyn because that's where all my cool friends were. (laughs) Yeah. Right. That's why I'm like, why didn't you come to Brooklyn? (laughs) Yeah. So I really, I was ready. And I remember I, I was dating Stanley at the time, who lived in Harlem. And he said, well, then that would be even more of a long distance relationship, right? And oh, so, yeah, it's true. And so, you know, we joked about it. And so I explored Harlem and ended up moving to Harlem and enjoying. I, I really do enjoy living in Harlem. I love the neighborhood. It's changed. Yeah. And I get to go to Brooklyn every now and then. Sure. Okay. So you've been living in the same area for the most part in Harlem for 20 years. 
I lived in Midtown for two years. So yeah, 18. Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So 18 years in Harlem, which is just mind blowing to me. Yeah. And it is mind blowing because so, describe for us the Harlem you came to and the Harlem that you live in now. Yeah. I mean, the Harlem I came to, so we live in Spanish Harlem, so East Harlem. Goodness, Florence, I don't know. There weren't, every time we went out, we would end up going to Midtown or Downtown mm-hmm. or maybe Brooklyn. At the time, there was one restaurant that was white tablecloth that was nice, but it was mostly like just quick takeout places. And then also it was very much, it was a very much black and brown neighborhood. And then we had kids and we started to see sort of like how the neighborhood was changing. I mean, we we didn't have places in our neighborhood where we could actually put our kids in daycare that were sort of like aligned with our values. So we would go to West Harlem. But nowadays, like West Harlem is built out. There's, there's so many restaurants. It, it is, the gentrification is at another level, but you know, there's a lot of restaurants. Um, there's a lot of restaurants in East Harlem. We can actually, we take pride in being able to go out and eat in our neighborhood. And be home, right? Yeah. And be home, right? Yeah. Um, and it, in the days when you needed a babysitter, it was nice to just be able to walk and not have to think about a two hour commute to get somewhere, then eat and whatnot. But no, it's changed a lot. There are still things that need to change. Look, I'd love for the schools to change a little bit. I'd love for the standards to increase in some of the schools in our neighborhood. That that pains me a little bit. Pains me when you have people of our generation that remember that went to these schools that are not sending their children to these schools because the school was a fading mm, school 20, right. 30 years ago. So there are there are things that still need to change. But you see, there's there's been massive development and hopefully with time that will start to change. Right, right, right. And during graduate school, became attached to a project about Robert Weaver, who was the first secretary of HUD, Housing and Urban Development. And so my first experience with Harlem, East Harlem, was the massive public housing communities, right? And so that has was always, mm-hmm. whenever I went to East Harlem, I would be like, wow, there's a lot of that going on. And then suddenly, and to some extent, it wasn't, it's not all low income either. Like, so I had friends who grew up yeah. there. So there's a program called Mitchell Lama that was Mm -hmm. for middle-class families as well. So then, you know, going around, I knew families that were, you know, they own their their apartments and, you know, people that I've met throughout life. And so you see that there were efforts for this kind of, I want to say mixed income community to develop. And I think that unfortunately the job situation has not, I never caught up to, for, for, for certain income levels, has never caught up to that ability for everyone to be upwardly mobile, right? So what happened mm-hmm. instead is that you have, you know, the crime and this, that, the other, and then you have the great, I want to say the great, it's clearly what it is, is gentrification, but this huge real estate transition that happened where old buildings were coming down. So when I think about the, mm-hmm. because doing economic development, I, I did work in East Harlem, I did work, you know, all over the city, and seeing now that there's these new buildings that are next door to down the road from these huge housing developments. And so now, obviously, your, your, your community is much more mixed, much more gentrified. But the thing, aside from the growth of Mount Sinai, 
which is the big institution there, I still don't see the job situation necessarily changing. We're still like focused on this, let's go work somewhere else and all that. So yeah, so I mean, that's that's just yeah. the nature of the beast to a large degree. But I just kind of wanted to add that as the perspective that me who have also lived in New York for a long time and the more things change, the more things often stay the same is kind of a lot mm-hmm. of what I observe. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely hear you there and agree. I mean, we have like there was a the East Side River shopping complex that was built, and then we have the Museum of Af- the African Center, yes. Museum of African, yes. yes, but but these places still haven't sort of like sort of like taken off to their full right. potential, right? If you look at the shopping center, one big box has recently closed down, and it's yeah. still empty. And that was a huge source of jobs. Yeah, so it's always work in progress, but yeah, it's just interesting to see mm-hmm. the the juxtapose as it as it happens. So still staying a little bit in the local side of things, I want to ask you my local speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. So can you share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as a local speak? Yeah. So recently, uh, for a while, I've been I've been sort of like dwelling on a quote from Gwendolyn Brooks, and it's like, "We are each other's harvest, we are each other's business, and we are each other's magnitude and bond." I love poetry. <laughs> yeah, and I discovered this poem through my ch- my child. Right. So. Oh right. Yeah. That's how I discovered Gwendolyn Brooks as a child. Oh yeah. Really? As yeah. a child. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. And when I think about harvest. To me, Harvest speaks about growth, transformation, and gratitude. Mm-hmm. And when I think about business, we are each other's business, I think that speaks to care. It speaks to care for one another, care for outcomes, and then also accountability. And then when I think about magnitude and bonds, to me, that speaks about trust. It speaks about expansiveness, space, and the notion that there is enough for everyone. So that is kind of what I... I hear and I've been dwelling on quite a bit. Mm, I love that. That's beautiful. Show notes, folks. Show notes, show notes. We'll have a link to uh, (laughs) Gwendolyn Brooks and and some of her works as well. So I think that's a great segue into talking a little bit more about the Michelle that is an entrepreneur. So you obviously came to New York with a job, you know, working in corporate America, doing the grind. You know, it's so funny. I was just thinking about like my uniform nowadays. (laughs) Because I was like, I was just, I was reading a book and it described a man who was wearing a suit and loosened his tie. And I was like, wow, I used to have a work uniform. Like I didn't wear suits all the time, but you know, I was, you know, it was business, right? And so I don't know the last time I put on a suit. So you work with executives. Just tell, tell us about how you transitioned from working in corporate America to working around and lifting corporate America in a different way. Yeah. So I started off in corporate America. Well, I didn't start off, but when I moved to New York, I worked in finance Mm -hmm. and I spent about five years of that organization. And the first two years of that organization was really rocky. For the first time in my career, I was receiving feedback, um, such as I lacked common courtesy or Mm. I didn't do what I was told to do or that I was the feedback was always that I was the problem and I was an issue. And I'd never had these issues in the workplace. But I remember another dear friend that we have in common said, you seem, this seems to be happening to you a lot. Are you sure it's them or you? 
Mm. <laughs> and so I owned a part of the a part of the role that I played in that. But when I looked at when I thought about why am I having these problems? For the first time in my career, I'd worked with two white women in succession. And the challenge I had was that, you know, you talked about uniforms. I went to an all-girls school. We were just, I don't know what they do at all-girls schools, but I just came out just very vocal and very comfortable in my skin. But that wasn't okay. It wasn't actually okay for me to be vocal and to ask questions and to have a point of view. Mm-hmm. Really, the way I that people needed me to show up in that moment was to just do as I was told. But that, I don't think that's where I had value. So that's not how I operated. So what happened in those two roles is that then I became the associate that pretty much if I didn't find a new manager, then I would be exited out of the program because it was a two-year leadership development program. So now I have to go with these poor reviews and convince someone to take me on. <laughs> Right? <laughs> wow. To take me on. Yeah. And so again I gravitated to I gravitated to men to that were also that would be comfortable with my presence, right? Like not that I was making them comfortable, but like they needed someone to help them with a situation or an issue and I was that and and I had to convince them that I could help them do that. But I share that because what happened is that I became one of the few associates that had, had a bad run that actually survived and was retained and not and didn't leave and wasn't fired. So then I became the go-to person for everyone at that organization that was having issues with their manager or issues of a project. And I became and so I was playing this role as like mentor guide counselor and I was doing that in the background. So there was that. So I became, and I and I loved helping people. And you know, I wasn't I wasn't a certified coach at that time. Sure. I just tell people like you've got to go and do this. And so then, fast forward, I'm working on a project where I'm in London. Go, I'm based in London, but coming back and forth. And I remember just feeling. I always say to people, I was in a role where I was asked to affect change, but nobody wanted to do what, mm. it, what was required mm-hmm. to act on that change or implement that change and I was always a person that read the room I always knew who was going to sort of like support the change and who was going to be the roadblock but it just got to a point where I just thought you know what I want to be able to affect change at a different level maybe on an individual level and so I remember saying to Stanley then my boyfriend I remember I was in a car on the way to Canary Wharf in a cab and I said to him what would you say if I said I didn't want to do this anymore and without skipping a beat he said I would say you should be a life coach. And I remember feeling really angry when he said that. I said, why would you say that? I will starve. And he said, well, what makes you <laughs> what makes you think you'll starve? I said, well, that's what I do for fun. Like, no one pays for that, right? No one pays for coaching. And he said, look, all I know is that when you're here, you spend most of your nights on the phone helping people. And you seem to enjoy that. That's all I know. That's all I'm saying. So I hang up, go off to my meeting, get back to hotel. And Florence, I did not probably sleep for about a week. So I'd go to work. Then I'd come back and think, why can't I be a coach? Yeah. What would happen if I was a coach? And I started to explore and ask questions. And, you know, in typical coach fashion, by the time I got back to England, I had a 30-day plan. 
where I was going to research coach programs, talk to other potential other coaches that were doing things and that that were practicing coaching. And then my goal was within 30 days to enroll in in a coaching program. And so that's what I did. Mm. And that was, to me, that was sort of like the turning point. I mean, I enrolled in that coaching program. The first weekend of that coaching program, I came back to work. I was so excited. And I remember telling um, a colleague, so she says, oh, can you, can we go out so you can coach me? So I said, yeah, but we work together. So it's just us talking. I'm not, it's not a business thing, etc. I was trying to sort of like create the line. So I coached her and then she threw money at me. And I said, I can't take your money. We're <laughs> we are colleagues. It's a conflict of interest, it felt like. But she was convinced. She said, you've helped me so much. I said, well, you've got to give it to charity or something But because I, I can't take it. But just that conversation, like having that mm. conversation and just sharing my excitement, thought, oh, people would invest in mm. this. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the back end, what was also happening was that at that point, I remember clearly it was June and my I just got the notification that my green card was going to come the following February. So whatever I did, I had to stay at the company till February. Oh, you owe them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't, you, you, and when you're going through the process, you have to be employed, whoever sponsored yeah. you, you have to be still, still there. So I come up with this plan, 30 days, I enroll in the coaching program, like thinking, okay, I'm working towards February. Florence, the green card just arrives unceremoniously in the mail in July. Nice. So now, I, so then I go back to work, I say to my my green card came, I can leave. Like, think this is 2007, like 2000, 2007, like we're about to go into a recession, yeah. financial crisis. And um, he says, oh, I need you to stay for two months, two more months, and then you can leave. And I'm like, fine, because basically I'd agreed with him to only work a four-day work week mm, mm-hmm. so that I could spend one day a week focused on focused on coaching. And the thing that I said to him, it's like, I'm like you're not actually losing any time because like, I'm going to work. And I will do five days of work in four days. I've always done that, right? right? So you're really just getting sort of like me at full capacity. Sure. So... Again, another manager that supported my dreams. And yeah, so I did that and um, enrolled and then left the organization that September and October 1st, I like had three clients from the same organization. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, and from there, sort of like just built my factor day by day. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is, you know, when you... Because I think we probably, I think we had a holiday party. And so that's when I found out that you were now coaching. And I was like, wow, that's really a thing now because it hadn't been a thing so much. And so I was like, wow, that's amazing. And that you were actually making a living on it. I was like, wow. And then now fast forward and it is like, it's almost a necessity in the corporate space, right? Like I think every corporation has some kind of coaching aspect because they've recognized, you know, I had a guest once and she said, you know, when we're growing up, we have our parents to tell us what to do. And we have, you know, you know, teachers or whatever. But when you become an adult, you either have to figure out how to coach yourself or find coaching. And so I think Mm -hmm. that is actually, you know, this space that has flourished for you. So interesting. I love that because it's about what you're speaking about as a sounding board, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? It's about having sort of like a person or a group of people that you can bounce ideas off that are actually impartial. Mm -hmm. So the Mm -hmm. benefit of being a coach on the outside is that 
I'm not being held to sort of like the the company way of doing things. Do I need to understand that as a coach? Yes, I have to understand what your what your values are, but I also have to understand where you are in alignment and out of alignment with those values, right? In order to be because that's that's critical, right? If you're going to be effective in an organization, we need to understand those components. But yeah, a lot of you know, if you speak to my clients now, more so in the last two years, coaching and therapy are necessities. Yes, exactly. And and definitely not the same person. You know, I think a lot of people try to cheap out yeah. and say, oh, I'll just get one or the other. And it's like, no, I think there's there's a lane. Just as you said, you had the Harvard guy who was the data and then you had the Kellogg guy who was the people. So it's it's kind of those specific mm-hmm. tool sets or skill sets that, that speak to the whole person in a different way. So yeah. Yeah. Mm, Interesting. So let me ask you about how you have evolved as a coach yourself and then grown the business Mm -hmm. over time. Okay, great. So I want to make a quick distinction Mm -hmm. because I I just want to clarify. So when we think about therapy, it's delving into the past. Mm. That's not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when we think about and and sort of like helping sort of like and and also the present, but also helping sort of like make sense of that. Sure, sure, sure. So as a coach, I delve into the past, but I don't stay there. Mm. People's stories are important, but we can't. I can't stay there. I'm not qualified to stay there. I really think about how do we take those nuggets and then help you move mm. forward. Mm-hmm. So that's the distinction. It's like coaching is always like forward mm. moving. Mm-hmm. In terms of how I've evolved, so when I think about it, so I kind of started off doing, sharing sort of like the insights that I knew about how to survive in the corporate world, but more importantly, like, how to sort of like progress around career transition. Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of job search. I did a lot of resume reviews. I did a lot of interview preparation and, and that was okay. And look, that served me well. And can I do it? Yes, I can do it. I don't focus there much these days. And the transition for me again came through some, and sometimes it's, it's sad that someone else has to believe in us before we believe in ourselves. But I had a client and I'd, I think, I can't remember if this was the first or second role that I'd helped her find, C-level role. And she said, oh, my organizer, and she happened to be in the talent space, human HR space. And she said, my organization needs an executive coach. Do you do executive coaching? And so I quickly said, oh, no, I don't do executive coaching. I just do job search coaching. And she said, what are you talking about? I'm an executive and you coach <laughs> Right. And and I thought, you know what, she has a point. So in, in my mind, executive coaching, you need to have certifications. Uh-huh. You need to be, have assessment certifications and whatnot. Mm. So she brought me into her organization. And I did sort of like a half day session on coaching skills for her, for the HR team. And then brought me into the organization to coach an executive. And then other people brought me into their organization. So I tra- I evolved into a coach that worked in the corporate space, right? Really, I worked with people, leaders that had either recently been promoted or were on the path to being promoted. There was um, one person I worked with, he was quite senior, but the only person that was not on the executive committee. And it was because he had like these great ideas, but he wasn't able to articulate them. And, and my role was to really help him see, not to help him articulate, but to think about who are the partnerships and what are the relationships that you can build to help bring your craft to light, right? And so that people can see the impact. And so we worked together for seven months and at the end of the seven months, he was promoted to the executive committee. 
it's really around sort of like helping people sort of like look at what are some of the behaviors what has served me well up until mm-hmm. this point and what are some of the new behaviors and skills that i need to put into practice and also how right sometimes we have it in ourselves sometimes there are other people that have the skills that we can benefit from so really thinking about how you get people to collaborate mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense so when you say that you've kind of changed so has your typical client also changed Yeah. So my typical client has changed in terms of like how they find me. So typically what will happen, it's an organization that approaches me. And and then obviously we have to make sure that there's a fit. But my client tends to be, they're not looking for a job. They're in a job. um, They're in a position, in a role. And they are looking for ways to show up in a way that supports their team, show up in a way that emphasizes their effectiveness and impact. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but yeah, the, my client has mm-hmm, changed. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see. I, I think I'm understanding that the ways that they've changed to some degree is that, well, you first had those who are just looking for kind of to level up on a job, right? So just to kind of get into a new role and, mm-hmm. and what that means in terms of presenting themselves for this new role. And now you are working with people who are in the roles and kind of, I mean, in some regards, leveling up, but also wanting to be more impactful as they move themselves into these roles and for the people that are around them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, Florence, essentially, it's like I'm working with people that are now being asked to think about or want to think about how they show up as a leader, right? How they show up as a leader first, and then how they show up for the people that they are leading and creating some consistency there. Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Michelle Owuku-Tatum. Be sure to come back next week when Michelle gives us a crash course on leveling up leadership in today's political environment, as well as more juicy tidbits about what she's reading and what she's watching. You can catch us with new episodes Tuesdays at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, bye for now.